I'm Alexander Lawrence Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts podcast. Welcome to episode 13, a lesson in early modern linguistic theory with Johann Merkin and its implications for the study of material texts. This episode of Cloister Talk explores intellectual thought around the origins and significance of the German language in the early modern world, and how these thoughts connected to the visual appearance of fraktur letter forms in both print and manuscript. This podcast series explores topics covered in my new book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. There are many questions and ideas I address in the book that deserve further consideration, so each episode of Cloister Talk dives into one of those topics. If you'd like to learn more about anything discussed on the podcast, please read my book, which you can order from psupress.org. Or consider requesting the word in the wilderness from your favorite local bookseller or library. One of my favorite things about conducting historical research is when I discover source material that at first glance seems far removed from my research topic, but ultimately connects in important and highly relevant ways, if I keep an open mind about it. This is exactly what happened during a research trip I took in the very early stages of writing The Word in the Wilderness. I visited the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library at St. John's University in the bucolic rural college town of Collegeville, Minnesota, where I had done an internship some years earlier. While most famous for medieval manuscripts, the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library also holds a good number of engraved penmanship books, so I went there to do some contextual research for my Pennsylvania German manuscripts. While there, I encountered a wonderful penmanship book by the German Johann Merkin titled Liber Artificiosus Alphabeti Maioris and published in 1782. It is filled with lovely engraved penmanship samples, but what really captured my attention about this book is that in its introductory contents, it includes a tabular comparison of the standard alphabets of four major languages, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and German and argues for a universal similarity between the four, based on letter designs. The German explanation of all this was a bit too complex to decipher quickly, but I knew this chart offered a remarkable insight into contemporary thought about the perceived status of the German language in European culture at the time, and the theorized history of human language in its entirety. I believe this context is significant for understanding the place of German in the thought world of the early modern period. It indicates that for many intellectuals and apparently calligraphers as well, German language and the neo-Gothic or black-letter letter forms with which it was associated were important components of cultural identity. You can see the American language table at wordandwilderness.com sources. I'd like to spend the next few minutes telling you about the connection between language and identity in early modern Europe, and then we'll explore the American source in greater depth. Finally, we'll discuss how all of this bears on Pennsylvania German manuscript culture. 
By happenstance, design, or something in between, black letter, by which I mean the Gothic-inspired printing type that was standard fare for German publication from the age of Johann Gutenberg through the early 20th century, shared close associations with the most important political and cultural upheavals shaping 15th and 16th century society in German-speaking Central Europe. Gutenberg's printing press and its black-letter movable type were useful tools in fanning the flames of religious dissent, culminating in the printing of Martin Luther's German-language black-letter Bible and other sacred texts, many translated from Latin. Luther's incendiary commentary on the tyranny of the Catholic Church advocated throwing off the yoke of foreign, learned languages in favor of the German mother tongue. The word of God, claimed the Protestants, was no holier in Latin or Hebrew than in the common vernacular presented in black letter. The contrast of Luther's works published in vernacular German and black letter type, and the Gothic rotunda and other classical types and scripts of Latin language Roman Catholic liturgical works, added a visual distinction to religious and national divisions between languages. The Reformation inspired new waves of church bureaucratization, theological scholarship, and publication that catalyzed a rich German-language black-letter Protestant print culture. Indeed, the Protestant Reformation figured prominently in the standardization of the German language, the cultural association of black-letter with German-language text, and the centrality of Protestantism to nascent North German ethnic identity and proto-nationalism. The spiritual and associated linguistic dichotomy Luther and his followers delineated between Catholic and Protestant print culture both reflected and helped coalesce dialogue about the German language's history and future, shaping cultural consciousness around the language for several generations. Language, type, and script traditions played a central role in shaping concepts of cultural and intellectual identity in 17th and 18th century Europe, especially among Central European German speakers, who occupied more than 300 small, quasi-independent principalities and lacked much else to unite them, except common linguistic and, for many, Protestant heritage. Culturally loaded theories of linguistic development often claimed primeval origins for the German language. An important article by William J. Jones, titled Early Dialectology, Etymology, and Language History in German-Speaking Countries, published in the History of the Language Sciences in International Handbook on the Evolution of the Study of Language from the Beginnings to the Present, edited by Sylvain Oroux et al. in 2001, is a useful resource for learning more about this. Jones reports that German commentators had applied terms like lingua materna or mutterliche Sprache, which means mother tongue, and Landsprachen or language of the country, to the German language since the 14th and especially the 15th centuries. Some scholars postulated a German-speaking Adam, while others traced König Deutsch or King German to Abraham's Zeiten or Abraham's time. Though fanciful theories of a German-speaking Adam fell from favor in the 17th and 18th centuries, linguists continually underscored the ancient origins of German, often at Babel, and the discrete developments of the Germanic languages and the Romance languages, like French and Spanish. Distinct types and scripts reinforced discrete linguistic genealogies. Many theories sought to elevate German to the lofty status of Hauptsprache, or chief language, a title shared with Hebrew, Latin, and Ancient Greek. 
Such efforts situated the German tongue above vulgarizations of Latin, including French and Spanish, in the hierarchy of ancient holy languages. According to scholar Christina Kilius in her book Die Antiqua Frakturdebatte, or The Antiqua Fraktur Debate, published in Wiesbaden by Harasowitz Verlag in 1999, quote, There was obvious advantage if German, increasingly invested with knowledge of its own linguistic monuments, could stand as a major representative of a diasystem, the roots of which stretched much further back than the modern rivals French, Spanish, and Italian, end quote. This is where Merkin enters our story. Johann Merkin's 1782 German-language writing manual Liber Artificiosus Alphabeti Maioris builds an argument for linguistically-based scripts on contemporary theories of linguistic development following the destruction of the Tower of Babel. Noting scriptural knowledge that several tongues emerged at Babel out of one common root language, Merkin suggests that alphabets associated with written forms of those tongues originated from one root alphabet. As proof, Merkin offers in tabular format a visual comparison of letters of the Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and German alphabets, noting similarities among various letter forms across the alphabets. Merkin's scribal typology reinforces German's aggrandized status as one of four diasystemic languages to emanate from Babel, as compared to French, a vulgarization of Latin, while underscoring the level of difference he and others ascribed to the Latin and German scripts, or in his terminology their distinct alphabets. To Merkin and other writing masters, black-letter and Greco-Roman scripts and types were as different as German and Latin languages and religions themselves. Various period accounts attest to the centrality of text aesthetic to conceptions of linguistic and quasi-national identity. Terms like Muttersprache, which Luther and other reform-minded incendiaries employed so liberally, had late medieval roots in written, not spoken language. Germans' proclaimed status as Hauptsprache, or a diasystemic language, lent itself to discussion of linguistic purity, the extent to which German itself and its linguistic offshoots, including English and the Scandinavian languages, adhered to or strayed from their Teutonic roots. Johann Gottsched explained the correlation of type and script to linguistic genealogy. Quote, the Dutch and the English had, like the original German, initially shared a script with us. Afterwards, this the Anglo-Saxons had carried to Britain. They were alone there until William the Conqueror's time, when a good quantity of Latin and French words entered the language, which they wrote and published entirely in round Latin characters. So was their script so muddied that they nearly feel ashamed of it." End quote. Blackletter type and Frakturschrift, or the handwritten version of the alphabet that likewise was grounded in Gothic antecedents, enjoyed a golden age in the 17th century, as the German book trade flourished and the Holy Roman Empire's bureaucratic apparatus expanded. As German language asserted its status in the worlds of literature and scholarly inquiry, so too did its signature type and script. 16th-century publishers codified what remained for many years the tradition of black-letter use for German texts and the use of Greco-Roman type for foreign languages, especially the Romance languages, scientific publications, and classical texts. The same held true in Scandinavia, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and other Northern European Protestant nations.
A more substantial challenge to fraktur emerged in the 18th century, as classicism overtook Western Europe. Greco-Roman type and script had evolved since the days of the early humanists. Between the 15th and 18th centuries, Greco-Roman types lost evidence of their descent from scripts. As a result, Greco-Roman types became increasingly standardized and adapted to the printed rather than the written word. Classicization and education spread Greco-Roman types and scripts across the European continent, leaving the German-speaking world isolated in its adherence to the Gothic and thus reinforcing the German identity of black letter. France, which was Germany's leading literary rival, almost totally abandoned black letter in favor of Greco-Roman type and script in the 17th and early 18th centuries. The English reduced Gothic bookhands and types to ornamental use in English-language texts. Similarly, by the end of the 17th century, both the English and French had largely eschewed native Gothic secretary hand for imported Italian humanist current hands, or cursive hands. Men of trade and commerce hastened this shift, opting to maintain business records in merchant current hands derived from Italian humanistic models. The commercial emphasis of English-language handwriting education in George Bickham and Joseph Champion's 1741 Universal Penman is clear. A verse titled, The Penman's Advice to Young Gentlemen, reads, quote, Ye British youths are age's hope and care, you whom the next may polish or impair. Learn by the pen those talents to ensure, that fix even fortune and from want secure. For ease and wealth, for honor and delight, your hands your warrant, if ye well can write. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, English language writing instruction took on more and more commercial and emphasis, which often overshadowed writing manuals' imperatives toward moral education. Given Greco-Roman's new status as typographical and describal standard, challenges to black letter arose among the 18th century German literati, who were incensed by the ascendancy of French literature and angered by the perceived backwardness of black letter text and the literature that appeared in it. Publication of German literature in Greco-Roman type, some thought, would improve the reception of German literature in Western Europe. Some authors inspired by classicism clamored for the adoption of Greco-Roman type. Johann Wilhelm Ludwig Leim's Lieder and Ewald Christian von Kleist's Frühling appeared in Greco-Roman type as early as 1733. Greco-Roman type made little headway, however. Fraktur had become a popular trademark of German publications within and beyond the German-speaking lands. British writing master Joseph Champion titled his 1794 publication featuring neo-Gothic bookhand scripts, quote, a new and elegant set of copies in German text, end quote. Roughly 90 to 95 percent of all works published in the German-speaking lands between 1785 and 1810 appeared in black letter, a proud symbol of German linguistic and cultural identity. So, how does this all connect to the world of manuscript-making in early German Pennsylvania? In a way, the world of European intellectual debates over languages and alphabets seems far removed from what was happening in the agrarian countryside of southeastern Pennsylvania, but I actually think the conversations are connected, for the simple reason that spoken language, printed text, and handwriting styles united the various people we've been discussing.
Clearly, black-letter printing and the neo-Gothic scripts headed by Frakturschrift were closely associated with the German language, and with how the letter forms depicting the German language looked. It's a good reminder that Germans, living on the fringes of European culture in early America, were active participants in a thought world freighted with cultural meaning. Even if they did not actively think about their ethnicity and identity when creating Frakturschrift documents and reading books printed in Fraktur, they in fact were participating in a transatlantic community of text, grounded in centuries of heritage, that connected the German language to neo-Gothic letter design. If you are interested in learning more about the transatlantic resonances of the German language and how these resonances informed the wider world of print and manuscript culture in early Pennsylvania, please read Chapter 2 of The Word in the Wilderness, which is devoted to providing intellectual historical context for the text culture in the early modern German Atlantic. Do be sure to visit wordandwilderness.com sources to view pages from the Merkin and Bickham writing samples from the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library. On the next episode of Cloister Talk, we'll look at a fascinating poem by a famous New England poet of the 1800s that illuminates the place of Pennsylvania in the American collective historical imagination. In the meanwhile, I invite you to purchase The Word in the Wilderness by visiting psupress.org. You may also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit peer reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk.